Okay, so uh, <coughs> welcome back again, and uh, we are now going to have a look at the uh, Portalia Sutta, which is Majjhimanikaya 54. Uh, so you have to go back a little bit again. Uh, you know which page that is on? Uh, 18, is it? Uh, I think it's just a guess. Just a guess, okay. 14, uh, page 14. And uh, this particular sutta is a uh, discussion by the Buddha about the disadvantages or the downsides of the sensory world, often called sense pleasures, but basically it's about the whole realm of the five senses. So, um, uh, as I mentioned before, the idea here is that if you want to improve your meditation practice and you want to uh, you know, achieve some real stillness, some real depth, ideally coming to samadhi eventually, if you want to do that, you have to abandon these five senses. And the way to abandon the five senses is to basically see the disadvantage. This is how it always works in Buddhism. If you want to abandon anything, you have to see the downside of that thing. The adinava, it is called in the suttas. And then you can give it up, and then you can move on to something higher uh, as a result of that abandoning of the lower thing. And um, the way to do this uh, is, uh, on the one hand, you have to see the downside of the senses, but on the other hand, you have to build something else up in its place. You can't give up everything in the world that is delightful and fun and not have anything in its, in its place. If you have nothing in its place, it's not going to work out. So you have to find this balance between, on the one hand, uh, uh, building up qualities that make you feel happy and good, the spiritual qualities of generosity and kindness and all of these kind of things, uh, to build up some positive feelings and at the same time then abandon the five sense world. So they have to kind of balance these things. Uh, if it gets out of balance, uh, then it can lead to a lot of suffering and negativity and uh, it can be, the path can end up being feeling very harsh and unreasonable. Uh, so this balance actually matters matters a lot. <coughs> so we're going to have a look at these uh, similes that the Buddha talks about in the Sutta. This is my kind of standard thing I do on every retreat uh, because it's such an important thing to really deepen one's meditation practice and for this reason I bring it out on every retreat. Uh, so this Sutta is in the middle length sayings of the Buddha number 54 uh, with Potalia the Wanderer. Uh, and a large part of the sutta has been abbreviated here. It's just a focus on the kind of the essential part uh, dealing with the five senses. So this is how it goes. So I have heard at one time the Buddha was staying in the land of the northern Apanas, near the town of theirs called Apana. <laughs> then the Buddha robed up in the morning and taking his bowl and robe entered Apana for alms. He wandered for alms in Apana after the meal. On his return from alms round, he went to a certain forest grove for the day's meditation. Having plunged deep into it, he sat at the root of a certain tree for the day's meditation. This is a standard thing you see in the suttas. The monastics go for alms and then they go to a forest grove to, for the day's meditation. Diva Vihara is the Pali word, literally means days abiding or days dwelling or something like that, but it always implies meditation. Potalia, the householder, also approached that forest grove while going for a walk. He was well dressed in a cloak and a sarong with parasol and sandals. Having plunged deep into the same forest grove, he went up to the Buddha and exchanged greetings with him. When the greetings and polite conversation were over, he stood to one side, and the Buddha said to him, There are seat, seats, householder. Please sit, if you wish. So this is like the lead-up to this sutta, the kind of starting point. And so this is going to be a conversation between Potalia and the Buddha. And the reason why you may think it's a bit strange that he is kind of um, he is uh, 
described in this way, yeah, with a cloak, a parasol and sandals. What is this all about, this cloak and stuff? And the idea is that he is kind of someone who is a bit conceited. Yeah? These are kind of status symbols, these things in ancient India. If you have a parasol and sandals, you have a certain status. That's why this is mentioned here. And one of the rules for monastics is that you're not supposed to teach someone who is wearing sandals or is carrying a parasol. Yeah, because kind of you are, you are kind of you have your opinion of yourself is a little bit too high. So you kind of it's good to be humble if you're going to hear the Dhamma. That's kind of the idea behind this. So he's a little, little bit perhaps a little bit conceited, and obviously he has all the marks of a householder. These are the things that householders have. Yeah, they have parasols, they have sandals, and monastics normally would not have these things. And in certain situations they might, but often they would not. And so this is uh, the point here, yeah? And you will notice that the Buddha then says to him, please sit down, householder. And um, the point here is that this person, uh, he thinks of himself as a wanderer. He thinks of himself as an ascetic, uh, someone who has left the household life behind. Uh, and the Buddha kind of calls him householder. <laughs> and I have... <laughs> I've left that out, but he gets a bit upset when he gets told, told that he's householder. Yeah, what? I'm not a householder. <laughs> and so he's a bit upset by that. And so then the Buddha explains to him what it means to be an ascetic or someone who's gone forth. Yeah, and uh, this is kind of the background for this whole sutta. And then the Buddha talks about abandoning uh, the sense, sensory objects of the world, the sense pleasures, all of these kind of things, uh, because that is part and parcel, ultimately, of giving up the household life. Uh, so this is where this kind of all comes from, the background to all of this. Uh, it's a nice, very nice sutta, and you, if you wish to, I would recommend you to read the whole thing, but uh, because this, this retreat is only nine days, we can only do so many things on this retreat, uh, so we have to kind of uh, skip a few things. Uh, so, the, now come these famous similes, and these similes are mentioned in a number of places in the suttas. They are usually just mentioned by name. And this is one of the interesting things about the suttas, is that you find kind of cross-referencing like that. In one part of the sutta, they may talk about other suttas, and they will mention the sutta by name, or there will be, a, like in this case, there will be a simile that is explained here, and elsewhere the simile just exists by name. Yeah? So what that means, of course, is that these were generally known uh, and, the, some t and occasionally you would have to kind of re-explain everything. All you have to do was to name the simile, name the sutta, and everyone would know what you're talking about. Uh, so the idea is that these suttas are a coherent whole. They, they kind of hold together. Yeah, you can only understand one part if you understand the other parts. Uh, they kind of, you have this feeling that this was a general... Um, a general kind of corpus, a general group of suttas uh, that everyone knew about. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able just to name them like that. Uh, people wouldn't understand what is going on. Huh? So this is feeling of coherence and, and wholeness to the suttas. And this is one of those little uh, <coughs> pointers to that idea. So then the Buddha says, he now comes to these famous similes, and he says to Potalia, he said, Householder, suppose a dog, weak with hunger, was hanging around a butcher's shop. Then a deaf butcher or, his, or their apprentice would toss them a skeleton scraped clean of flesh and smeared in blood. What do you think, Householder? Gnawing on such a fleshless skeleton, would that dog still get rid of its hunger? No, sir. Why not? Because that skeleton is scraped clean of flesh and smeared in blood. That dog would eventually get weary and frustrated. In the same way, a noble disciple reflects in this way. With the simile of a skeleton, the Buddha said that sensual pleasures or sensual objects, if you like, give little gratification and much suffering and distress. And they are all the more full of drawbacks. Having truly seen this with right understanding, they reject equanimity based on diversity and develop only the equanimity based on unity, where all kinds of grasping to the world's material delights cease without anything left over. 
So uh, here we have this uh, famous simile of the dog. Yeah, a dog that is weak, dog looking for food, just like people in the world kind of feel weak with craving for whatever it is, uh, looking for things in the human realm, uh, looking for partners, looking for places to live, looking for anything in the sensory realm. Anything in that realm uh, is kind of included in this. Uh, this dog being hungry, full of craving, hanging around the butcher shop, looking through the butcher's window, trying to look as cute as possible. Yeah, this is what dogs do. And, uh, uh, but of course, a butcher, they want to make money. They're not going to throw away good meat to a dog. And especially those dogs in India, they're pretty kind of uh, mangy and kind of really kind of not very nice. Usually, at least now, I don't know what it was like in those days, probably the same in those days. Nothing has ever changed in India, and that's kind of stood still, in some ways at least, for a long time. And um, so this uh, butcher, it scrapes off all the meat, so the meat can go for sale, and then it takes a tiny bit of compassion on that dog, and then chucks out the bone, yeah, a skeleton, it says, like a bone, smeared with blood. And then the dog, very happy, gets a, gets a bone smeared with blood, uh, licks that bone, chews the bone, uh, gets a little bit of taste, yeah. But there's no meat there, there's no sustenance in these things. Uh, there's no way that that dog is ever going to get satisfied uh, with a bone smeared with blood. There's no way. All you do, there's enough taste there, enough blood, uh, just to make the craving even more powerful. Uh, the craving grows, uh, but there's no satisfaction at all uh. So what does the dog do? The dog runs off to the next butcher shop. Yeah, just down the road, there's another one. And that butcher is just as mean as the previous butcher. There's no way they're going to have much compassion for that dog. And so they, uh, again, do exactly the same thing happens. Another do- bone smeared with blood gets chucked at this poor dog. No satisfaction, no contentment, just more craving arises as you get the taste. But no fill, no real sustenance. And on and on and on this dog goes in the same way, yeah, carrying on from butcher. And there is never any satisfaction because in this simile, every butcher is the same. Every butcher is equally stingy. And then the dog dies. And when the dog dies, and this is kind of the really interesting thing where the whole idea of rebirth gets so interesting. Because when the dog dies, it gets reborn again gets reborn as a little puppy, and as soon as it gets reborn as a little puppy, its mother takes it to the butcher shop, and the cycle starts from afresh, starting out, learning how to go to the butchers, and on and on it goes without any end in sight. And this is what human life is like, this is exactly what is going on, this is kind of the point of this simile. Those things that we crave for in the sensory world, uh, in the sensory realm, they never give any satisfaction. Uh, you know what it's like. You think, if I get into this partnership, uh, I have this partner. Uh, if I have this kind of house, I finally get the dream house. Uh, I will be really satisfied when I get that house. It will be the end of, you know, finally, final satisfaction. If I get into this relationship, yeah, that is kind of the perfect person for me. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it never works out. There's always this external search for external things to satisfy a psychological need, it is never going to work because it is a psychological lack. There's a hole inside of us and that hole inside of us can never be filled by external things, whether it's relationships or things in the world or status or whatever it is can never be filled by these things. So we always run on. And even if it is a good relationship, still there's going to be other kinds of craving under the surface. Satisfaction will never really come in your life. It's impossible to come in this way. So we run on, and then we die, and we repeat exactly the same procedure in the next life. Would you like to do everything you have done in this life again in exactly the same way? I don't know, I, I find that horrifying to kind of having to go through all of those things. Yeah, growing up, running after girls when you are, when you are young, not, no idea what you're doing and kind of messing up and doing all kind of crazy things. Yeah, and then doing all of these things in life, which, and there's so much suffering and so many problems on the way. And, just, 
just the idea of having to do all of these things again it just fills you with dread but it's not only once right it's like again and again and again never learning because you forget during the rebirth process and never finding that satisfaction and the craving always tells you you will be satisfied when you do this but actually it is never true the dream is always different from the reality the reality never lives up to the dream that you have and it's kind of, you know, once you start to understand what is actually going on, you need that bird's eye perspective. You need to zoom out. And you need to have a sense of this process of rebirth. In this case, in particular, it's very obvious why the idea of rebirth gives a very different idea to what is going on compared to not having any idea of rebirth. Sometimes people say it doesn't matter whether you believe in rebirth. It's complete nonsense. It means they haven't really considered properly what actually is at stake. So what is the alternative? And the alternative, of course, is to realize what is going on. Is to realize that an inner psychological lack can never be fulfilled by external things. It can be maybe papered over a little bit. It can be, you know, you get a band-aid and it kind of soothes things a little bit. But you haven't really done anything with the inner problem. The problem is still there. And as soon as that external object changes, you perceive it differently, it disappears, or whatever then, of course, the problem re-arises because you haven't dealt with the issue. So how do we deal with the issue? What is the answer? And the answer, says the Buddha, is that you need to find something that sustains you. You need to find a happiness that is not related to craving. All of the happiness in the external world is always related to craving. It's always desires. It is never a kind of a happiness that is truly satisfying. And the happiness that is truly satisfying is the happiness on the spiritual path. If you feel joyful or happy or content because you have been kind to somebody, that happiness has a very different quality to it than the happiness of the sensory realm. The sensory realm is like always craving involved with that. And then when you have your full, you feel kind of dull afterwards. Yeah? You eat, wow, this is really nice. There's craving as you eat. And then afterwards, you fall asleep, right? That's a kind of a, this is a bit like the sensory realm. It's a bit like that. This kind of craving and a bit of fun. And then afterwards, you kind of lose all interest and you become dull instead. But the spiritual happiness is very different. There is no craving involved with that spiritual happiness. Yeah? When you are kind, it's actually a peaceful happiness you get from that kindness. When you are generous, again, it's a peaceful kind of happiness. And you start to see that actually here there is real satisfaction. There is real contentment. It is as if you can start to see the beginning of the goal that you have been looking for all along here. Craving told you, you're going to be satisfied. But no, and now you start to see the contours of a solution to the problem. So you start off living well. You start off getting a degree of satisfaction and contentment as a consequence. And you take it deeper and deeper and deeper. And then one day you sit down, you do your meditation practice. And one day you feel more peaceful than you have maybe ever felt in your life before. You go into a deep state of samadhi. And this is the magic of these deep states of meditation, that craving ultimately is completely gone. If you go far enough in samadhi, it's completely gone. And when craving is gone, you realize this is what I've been looking for all along. You have found something that is truly, fully satisfying. The hole inside has been filled in. There is no hole anymore. There's no sense of that emptiness, the hollowness that always has demanded you, know, you to fill it in. Now you have actually been able to do that. Wow. And this is why when you go all the way to the end of the spiritual path in this way, you attain a state of samadhi. It feels like you have found the answer to the meaning of life. You're always searching for the meaning of life. Craving was always driving you on. Desire was driving you on to somewhere. You don't know where. And it never finds the solution. Now you have found it. Craving has come to an end. That thing you were looking for has been discovered. This is the answer to the meaning of life. Yeah? If craving is the push to find something, now the craving is gone, it means you have solved the whole thing. And this is what it feels like. Yeah? This is kind of the whole point of samadhi. Yeah? It has that sense of completeness. Nothing is missing anymore. Full satisfaction. Of course, there is a state of bliss, a state of happiness. And you're not searching, you don't need anything more. 
So this is the first kind of glimpse of the idea of finding the solution to the problem of life, finding the answer to the meaning of life. Unfortunately, it doesn't last. You come out of that state of samadhi, craving re-arises. So you need something more, and that is where the idea of insight comes. Yeah? You need to have more insight so that you can kind of give up the craving once and for all. But this is really what this is about. And you can see here the difference between meditation on the one hand, which actually has a real purpose, and then the running around after sensual pleasures, which never actually gets you anywhere. It's kind of tragic when you think about that puppy and that young dog always running around, never finding a solution, suffering, 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 running, thinking it's going to find something, but never finding a solution. Okay, simile number one. This is pretty bleak stuff, so I just... <laughs> this is... Um, but it, I, I don't know, it's, it may seem bleak sometimes, but actually it also makes a lot of sense, I think. Yeah. So... Um, Yeah, that dog, dog will eventually get weary and frustrated. Yeah? In other words, you always feel frustrated pretty much. And let's maybe quickly go through that second paragraph there. And uh, the, so the Buddha says, sensual pleasures give little gratification and much suffering and distress. Yeah? They're full of drawbacks. And when you see this with the right understanding, you reject the equanimity based on diversity. And this means that you reject the ordinary equanimity of life, yeah, where you are kind of uh, in balance, you don't kind of get drawn too much into the, uh, the desires and the aversions of the world, but you have an equanimous mind, but you, are, you realize this is still too close to the sensory realm. You're still immersed in the sensory realm. You want to get rid of it completely. And so you go for the equanimity based on unity. And equanimity based on unity is the equanimity of samadhi, yeah? the deep states of meditation, where all kinds of grasping to the world's material delights cease without anything left over. The, uh, this is where karma, sensuality, comes to a complete end in these states of samadhi. So, Let's go on to the next simile here. <clears throat> Suppose a vulture or crow or a hawk was to grab a lump of meat and fly away. Other vultures, crows and hawks would keep chasing it, pecking and clawing. What do you think, householder, if that vulture, crow or hawk doesn't quickly let go of that lump of meat, wouldn't that result in death or death-like suffering for that bird. Yes, sir. And then it repeats what we saw before. So this is the simile of the piece of meat. And the idea here, of course, is that pieces of meat are very valuable to birds. And one bird wants the piece of meat. All birds want a piece of meat. It is rare to get hold of pieces of meat. Usually you have to kind of eat insects and whatnot if you are a bird. So this is kind of nice. So, of course, there's going to be a lot of rivalry over this piece of meat. There isn't, a, there isn't much sympathy or compassion or empathy in the, in the world of birds. Yeah, if one, you just kind of go after each other and you kind of try to grab it and pull it out of its claws... And of course, that could be disastrous for the first bird. Yeah, you may end up dying, you may end up with death-like suffering uh, as a consequence. And this is this idea that um, the world has limited resources. Is it wor the idea that we share the same external world? And because we share the ex same external world, and every one of us is a little bit greedy, every one of us has more desires that can ever be satisfied, it means that we are going to have rivalry over the things in this world. We're going to compete. We're going to eventually fight. We're going to end up having wars over the world outside because the economic pie is only so large. And if you get a larger piece, I get a smaller piece. That's how that world works. And um, so what this means, and what is so powerful about this particular simile, it means that the world of the five senses is inherently full of conflict. 
Yeah, it is just impossible for that world not to be conflict in that world because we want the same things, we want the same partners, we want the same jobs, we want the same big houses. Yeah, we all want the same thing in that world, and so we're going to. Uh, have rivalry over that. We're going to compete over those things. And when we compete, there's going to be winners and losers. And when there's win- winners and losers, some people are going to be hurt. And then there's going to be arguments. We're going to fight over things. And ultimately, we're going to have violence and wars. And this is a very big reason why we have violence and wars in our world. And that's kind of really off-putting, isn't it? When you know that there is no way we can arrange our world, there's no way we can arrange our world in such a way that we haven't got any conflict or violence in that world. It's inherent to that world. That's just the way the world works. And that's kind of, I don't know to you, but to me this is incredibly off-putting. There's a very beautiful sutta, Elsewhere, where the Buddha shows this in much greater detail, he goes down, goes through the causal sequence of how you start off with desire, and then you kind of go searching for things, and then you kind of think, ah, my computer, yeah, don't, and you kind of hold on to it, it becomes yours, and then uh, because of this holding on and being greedy for things and etc., that is where the rivalry and things start, and all violence and everything comes out of that. There's a very beautiful sutta where kind of the causal sequence is made out. Actually, it's in the, found in the Mahanidana Sutta, Diganikaya 15, you find that sequence. And also a couple of other places in the suttas. And uh, so uh, this is uh, the world we are in. Yeah? We fight over the inheritance from our fathers. We fight over the jobs, uh, with a kind of rivalry in the office, office politics, or whatever people call it. Uh, this rivalry of having the partners, and once you get a nice partner, you get jealous because they might go off with someone else. Uh, we everywhere, yeah. There is there is these things, and uh, because of that, uh, that whole sensory realm is really quite unsatisfactory. Of course. It is possible to create societies that are better than others. It is possible to create societies where, you know, where uh, there is more kind of, uh, things are a bit more fair and even, evenly distributed, everyone is better off. Uh, but even though you can make it better, it is always going to be problematic. So, um, yeah. Anyway, so I thought that one is, uh, is actually a very powerful simile. What is the alternative? What is the opposite? And again, of course, the opposite is to, instead of looking for that happiness outside, is to look for it inside. Yeah? Because the inner happiness, there is no rivalry about that, because that is your personal realm. Yeah? No one is, we can't fight over the inner happiness. And in fact, the inner happiness is exactly the opposite. It has the opposite effect. Because when you have an inner happiness, then that will also express itself in how you deal with the world around you. Yeah, so if you have a happiness within that doesn't really rely on external things, then what is going to happen is that you are going to be a blessing for the world because you are going to be someone who creates harmony in the world because of you uh, understand the idea of kindness and generosity and all of these things. That is where you get your happiness from. So the spiritual path, again, has the exact opposite effect of the worldly path. The worldly path leads to conflict and problems. The spiritual path ultimately leads to harmony, cooperation, working together, and a degree of peace in society. So one of the best things that each one of us can do if you want to have more peace in the world is actually to practice a spiritual path. Yeah? This leads to peace, at least in our little realm, in our little neighborhood. So this is a kind of a very useful. Okay, we will carry on. There's one simile coming quick after the, the other, one after the other coming very fast here, so let's go for the next one. Suppose a person carrying a blazing grass torch what was to walk against the wind. What do you think, householder? If a person doesn't quickly let go of that blazing grass torch, wouldn't they burn their hand or arm or other limb, resulting in death or death-like suffering? Yes, sir. So um, that is the simile of the blazing grass torch. Yeah. So the idea here is that if you hold something in the wrong way, if you don't know the right way of holding something, it's going to hurt you. 
Yeah, just like the blazing grass torch is going to burn you up when you go against the wind. In the same way, if you grab a hold of the things in the world, if you attach to those things and you hold them in the wrong way, it is okay to hold things a little bit, yeah, because you have, sometimes you have to hold them. But the moment you attach to them, the once you mentally grasp hold of these things, at that point you're asking for suffering. Suffering must follow the moment you grasp onto things. And this is what they're saying here. Hold things in the wrong way, suffering will follow as a consequence. Because nature is going to come, and nature is going to take these things away from you. Things are always temporary. Things last for a while, and then they have to go. So you're going to be burned as a consequence of this. So we learn to take up things in the world in a different way. We learn to understand that things are impermanent, that they are unreliable. We don't grasp them in the wrong way. We use them with wisdom. Yeah? And uh, so still, even if you're an arahant, you still have to live in the world. You still have to deal with the things in the world. But you don't grasp them in the way that you used to. That is what allows you to not be burned in this way. There is another simile in the sutta, the simile of the, the debt. Yeah? If you enjoy too much of the sensual pleasures of the world, it's like having a debt. And it's a bit like this. The debt is that it has to be repaid. Because once you attach to things, at moment you have to repay it down the track through suffering or whatever else. And when there is repayment, not only do you have to repay the principal loan, you have to repay also all the interest rates and whatever else that you have. All right. Let's go on to the next one here. Suppose there was a pit, pit of glowing coals, deeper than a man's height, full of glowing coals that neither flamed nor smoked. Then a person would come along who wants to live and doesn't want to die, who wants to be happy and recoils from pain. Then two strong men would grab them by the arms and drag them towards the pit of glowing coals. What do you think, householder? Wouldn't that person writhe and struggle to and fro? Yes, sir. Why is that? For that person knows if I fall into that pit of glowing coals, that will result in death or death-like suffering. Yeah. Or, yeah. So, um, this is the idea of the glowing pits of coal. And this is a very challenging one to understand. Yeah? How can the sensual pleasures in the world be like a gl- glowing pit of coal? This, kind of really, this one is really, really hard to understand because uh, it is so far from our ordinary experience of the sensual pleasures of the world. It is just so different. So how can we understand this simile in the right way here? And uh, the way to understand this uh, is, again, this takes a a little bit of faith and confidence in the teachings of the Buddha. Otherwise, you cannot really grasp what is going on. uh. But this simile is actually explained elsewhere in the suttas. uh, And the way it is explained, it is explained that, well, our perception of the world is so distorted. uh, It is so uh, uh, wrong uh, that what looks like happiness, in fact, actually turns out to be suffering. uh, What the Buddha says... uh, and he uses the simile of the leper to explain this. He says that imagine if there is a leper. Yeah, you know leprosy, where you have lots all sores and things all over your limbs and everywhere. Is some kind of virus apparently still exists in certain parts of the world. And if you are a leper, it is apparently incredibly itchy. In fact, it is so itchy and so bad that you often they will go to a fire and you will happily burn your limbs on that fire to relieve some of the itchiness of those uh, wounds that you have. You literally burn your limbs on the fire. Yeah? And uh, so then you feel a sense of relief because the itchiness goes away and presumably the sensation of being burnt is less than the problem of the itch. Yeah? That's kind of how bad it is. And then the Buddha said, well imagine then that this leper goes to a doctor somewhere and the doctor gives him some kind of medicine, yeah? Uh, maybe he kind of goes into the future and comes to the kind of our world, he gets some kind of modern medicine and goes back again, something like that. Uh, or maybe, they actually, probably had some medicines in those days as well. And so, he is free of leprosy, 
right? And then the, the Buddha says, well, would that leper, or that ex-leper now, would that leper go back to that fire and burn his or her limbs in that fire as before? And the, this man, this Magandhya, who the Buddha is talking to, says, of course not. And then the Buddha asks him, and this is kind of the critical thing, why wouldn't he do that? Because it would burn, they would burn themselves. And the Buddha says, well, is it only now that that fire is hot? And before, it was not. And Maganda says, no, of course, the fire was always hot. But before, the faculties were so distorted, you weren't even properly able to experience the pain of that fire. And the Buddha says, well, that is what it is like with sensual pleasures. Your faculties are so distorted, you're not really able to understand what is going on. Yeah. So this is kind of hard to grasp, right? It's hard to really understand. How can all the beautiful things in the world, all the marvelous things that we have, how can that be compared to a charcoal pit? And one way of thinking about this, this is what I kind of, uh, maybe the closest you can come to really understand what is going on, it is perhaps a bit like smoking here. Yeah, smoking, I don't know if anyone here has smoked, but when I was kind of young and foolish, I would occasionally kind of get a cigarette or a cigar or something. Yeah. And, you know, just, just to be, have a bit of fun, you know, what it's like. Yeah. And uh, so you smoke the cigarette. It's actually terrible, right? It's absolutely really, really awful. It's like, oh, I can't, can't breathe. It's like, you know. <laughs> so you do it for all kind of foolish reasons. But eventually, if you get addicted to that cigarette, I was never addicted to the nicotine. But if you get addicted... The craving is incredibly powerful. Yeah, it is like, wow, you have to have that cigarette. It's supposed to be one of the most powerful cravings you can have, the craving for cigarettes. So you get that cigarette and you feel this incredible sense of relief when you smoke. But the taste is exactly like before. It actually is terrible. Yeah, it actually is really, it is really, really bad. And still, you feel a sense of relief when you have that. And so the Buddha says that sensual pleasures are a bit like this, yeah? And um, I think the idea here, the main kind of point here, is actually, I think, is relating to sexual pleasure. I think that is the main idea here. Because uh, that is where the craving is often the most powerful. Uh, and because the craving is very powerful, the mind is actually very agitated. It's actually a very unpleasant state when seen from a certain point of view, uh, yeah? It is a bit like the craving for having a cigarette. Very, very powerful craving. You're very agitated and restless. And if you understand that restlessness and agitation properly, actually, it is actually a very unpleasant state. So this is how to approach this idea, which is very kind of hard to understand. Yeah? So um, remember that when you see some delightful sensual objects in the world, remember charcoal pit. Yeah? Stay away. See a beautiful kind of car coming down the street. Oh, charcoal pit, charcoal pit. Uh, and you're on the right track, yeah. <laughs> so th these things are uh, interesting. And I think the only reason why I love these symbols is precisely because they are so challenging. Yeah, it really makes you look at the world, think about things uh, in an entirely new way. Uh, that is what is so interesting about this. Uh. Okay. Let's move on to the next one here. Suppose a person was to see delightful parks, woods, meadows, and lotus ponds in a dream. But when they woke up, they wouldn't see any, anything at all. They wouldn't, see, they wouldn't see them at all. It would all be gone. So this is, again, a simile for the sensual things of the world. Yeah, The idea of the dream, the idea that... Uh, and uh, there's a couple of ways that you can interpret this particular uh, idea of the dream. One way of doing it is that when we think about what the world is going to be like, yeah, yeah, what sensual players are going to be like, what the relationship is going to be like, what the house is going to be like, yeah, the idea in our head is very different from the reality. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I, you know, you... The, the, kind of, especially when you're really young, kind of the rosiness uh, and how kind of wonderful romantic relationships are in your head when you're young is utterly unrealistic. Yeah, yeah really, really completely wrong. Yeah. Uh, 
or even just having a, you know, the idea of having a house, having a beautiful house, you design your own house, and in your mind it is perfect. But of course the reality is never the way it is. As soon as it's the house is finished, it starts falling apart, it needs to be cleaned, it needs to be, you know, there's actually lots of downsides you never have really properly considered with these things. The dream is always very different from the reality. Things never really live up to the promise, to the, what craving tells you in the mind. This is a very useful thing to remember. Yeah? And when you see that, you actually takes away a lot of the fun of the sensory world. But it's also a dream in another way, and that is the fact that when you have something, you have a relationship, or you have some whatever it is in the world, and then one day it's gone. And then one day it's gone, it is almost like it was a dream what you had before. I don't know about you, but when I think back to my life, you know, my early years, as a, you know, when I was a teenager or whatever, I can barely remember what it was like. It seems like a dream, it seems almost unreal. Yeah? Well, even my life before I was a monk, I've been a monk for so long now, I can barely remember what it was like not to be a monk. That's kind of actually nice in one way. But uh, it also seems like kind of very blurry. I, I can't really imagine almost what it is like not to be a monk anymore. It's kind of strange, isn't it? And everything is like, uh, seems uncertain. Or people in your life pass away, they die. Like, you know, my grandparents, I was very fond of my grandparents when I was a, a child. And then they are gone. And it's like... Who were they? Did they ever exist? It's almost like, you know, it becomes this kind of memory which isn't real, this kind of fragments of what it was like. And it's almost as if the things that we hold on to in the world, they are hollow. They're not real. All the attachments that you have now, one day they too will be gone and it will seem like a dream. Something that wasn't really real. Is it real now? You wonder, right? If it's not going to be real down the track, is it real now? And the whole thing starts to seem much more hollow. The reason why our attachments and things that we have seem real to us is precisely because we project permanence onto them. This is the delusion of seeing permanence into what actually is permanent. We know somewhere at the back of our minds that these things are impermanent, that they are unreliable, that they will have to go one day. But we don't really see it in a deep way there's always there is a degree to which we see them as much more permanent than they actually are. It's actually a very profound insight to see things as impermanent. Yeah, it seems, everything seems much more hollow once you see it in that way. And it's like anything can be taken at any point, any time. Things can just die, disappear, be gone, just like that. So if you think you understand impermanence, the chances are no, you probably don't really understand impermanence. It's actually very profound. Yeah, it is this, um, and this kind of helps you to kind of grapple with these ideas. I'm just thinking that we should really do one, one of these um, similes per talk. Really, one talk just per simile that would be probably be better, right? Because they deserve a lot of contemplation and thinking. It's kind of too much when you get all of these kind of packed into one session. Anyway, that's what we're going to do. That's what I have. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go on to the next one. Suppose a man had borrowed some goods, a gentleman's carriage, a fine jeweled earrings, and preceded and surrounded by these, he proceeded through the middle of Apana. This is the little town where the Buddha is staying here. When people saw him, they would say, This must be a wealthy man, for that is how the wealthy enjoy their wealth. But when the owners saw him, they would take back what was theirs. What do you think? Would that be enough for that man to get upset? Yes, sir. Why is that? Because the owners took that back what was theirs. So here you have the idea of the borrowed goods. Yeah? This uh, man kind of borrowing stuff and then all the people and kind of feeling and then kind of building up a sense of self probably because of all those. Yeah, when you are wealthy, then you are more important. That's what, that's what you think when you're wealthy. And then you kind of go around and people say, look, wow, that's a wealthy person, just like people do these days. 
and then they come and take it back. And then when they take it back, you kind of feel naked, yeah? Your sense of self kind of is all deflated, uh, and you feel really bad because of that. You can't enjoy those things. Uh. And um, it, this is a very, again, a very kind of, I think, very nice simile, easy to understand, yeah? The idea that everything in our life is borrowed. Uh, we don't really own it. We have this idea of ownership. We have the idea, this is my things. But no, they're not really your things. They belong to nature. Yeah, everything, you have it for a while. You are borrowing it from nature for a few years, maybe a few decades if you're lucky. Yeah, and then it has to go. Most of the things that we have in our life, they have to go while we're still alive. Because things are impermanent, things change, things go, people die, we die, you know, everything goes. At the very latest, it has to go when you die. Everything has to go when you die. And this is one of the reasons why the time of death is such a powerful moment of understanding impermanence. Because everything has to go. And we'll see if you can do a little uh, death contemplation as part of the meditation at some point. Because it's kind of nice to kind of get used to the idea of dying in this way. Yeah. So everything is borrowed. Yeah? And uh, this is a very useful reflection when you look at the things in your life, whether it's the relationships or the things that you own or even the status or the position you have in society, whatever it might be. Remember, all of these things are temporary. Yeah? There are borrowed things. How do you look at your car if you know your car is borrowed? If you rent a car, what is the difference between renting a car and owning a car? Actually, there is no difference. Yeah, We think there is a difference, but actually there isn't. So start looking at your car as a rented car. Look at your house or flat as a rented house or flat rather than something you own. And your attitude changes. Right? You have a different approach to it. You don't kind of attach to it so much anymore. You don't spend heaps of money on making it up because it's the owner. Well, they, ultimately there is no owner, but assuming there is an owner in case of renting something, who actually gains the benefit. Everything is just temporary like that. You treat things in a different way. Even people, you start treating them differently if they are temporary relationships. And it doesn't mean that we treat things badly. We still treat things well. You look after the rented car. You look certainly after the relationships. And sometimes we actually look after it more because we don't take it for granted in the same way when we know it's temporary. If today is the last day we see each other, are we going to treat each other badly or with kindness? More likely with kindness. But if I know that I'm going to have to see the same irritating people tomorrow, then... <laughs> no. <laughs> I apologize, I'm being naughty here. Then we're going to treat this other worse, right? We're not going to be as nice. But if it's the last day, you can forgive that kind of small irritation, so whatever. So this is kind of the idea of temporariness. We are more forgiving and more kind to each other when we understand these things. So this is how it works. And the idea then is that when you think in this way, when you come to your deathbed, everything has to go. Everything has to go, except for what? except for one thing, your mind. And this is what we are say when we say that you are the heir of your karma, because your karma is basically the mental qualities that you have developed during this life. Yeah? Your karma is the, the karma is divided into different aspects. There's the karma that is the, has resolved right away in this life, that result in future life, and then in lives beyond that. And the, res the result in this life is basically how you feel about yourself in this life. That is the results right here in this life. So what happens when we see the world in this way? We start to invest differently. Yeah, I always say that if you want to understand investment properly, don't go to these investment banks. Come to the monastics, come to the monks. We will teach you how to invest. Long-term investments, yeah. If you go to an investment bank and you say you want to invest for the future life, they're going to look as if you are nuts. Come to the monks and nuns say that. Yeah, we will t tell you how to do that. Uh, that's what I'm teaching you now. Long-term investment. Uh, yeah, that kind of gives result for the really long term. Uh. And so the Buddha tells us that uh, when you invest in the right way, you take that mind with you into the future. Uh. Yeah, if you want to reap really long-term results, uh, in your life, that is what you want to do. That is why you want to invest. Yeah, and that even that karma has kind of a, a, a um, you know, a, a date by which it is kind of come, becomes defunct. It is no longer uh, 
kind of acceptable use by date if you like. But uh, at least it is far, far, far more permanent, less impermanent uh, than the ordinary things in our life. So we invest there instead. What does it mean to invest in those things? What it means, the only thing it really means uh, is a change in attitude. That's really all it is. So we start to imbue things in our life with spiritual qualities. That's really all it means. So we start to think, how can I be more kind in general? How can I be more generous? How can I go on a meditation retreat at least once a year? How can I be more peaceful? How can I do all of these kind of things? That is what it means. You don't need to make a radical change in your life. You don't have to become a monk or a nun. At least not straight away, yeah, but down the track maybe, but not, not straight away. <laughs> you don't have to do that. You can still live a fairly ordinary life and live it in the right way, yeah? But that is what it means to change your investment strategy. It is how you live your ordinary life, not necessarily exactly what you look like in terms of, you know, whether you're a monk or, non- or a layperson. So it's a quite a subtle difference. And then you are investing for the future, yeah? There's too many people in this world, they just live for what is around them. Yeah, they live for material goods now, for relationships now, for the status we have now. And imagine if that is all you live for. Imagine if your whole life is about that. And for some people, that is exactly what life is about. And then you come to your deathbed. What do you feel like on your deathbed if everything you have invested in are things you have to give up? You can't take anything with you beyond this point. You feel foolish. Yeah, you feel kind of slightly, you feel like you have wasted your time. I spent things that I didn't realize how impermanent they were. I didn't realize these were borrowed goods that would have to be taken back by nature down the track. And now I feel like a fool because everything has to go and I'm naked. There's nothing I can take with me into the future. So on your deathbed, you feel confused, you feel empty, you feel like a fool because you have wasted your time in this life doing things that actually doesn't really lead anywhere. But it's actually worse than that because a lot of people who live only for this life, who live only for getting things now, having things now, very often they act immorally at the same time. They cheat people, they do things that are bad, because if everything is about what is happening in this world, uh, and morality don't really understand what that is about, uh, then it is worthwhile sometimes doing immoral things. Uh, yeah? It is worthwhile because this world is what matters. Uh. And then when you are on your deathbed, you know that you have lived badly, done bad things, and the only thing that you can take with you into the future is that guilty conscience, that sense of remorse for not having lived well. That's what happens on your deathbed. And that's kind of despairing. Don't get there. Right? Don't do that. Because if you do that, you're letting yourself down. You're being your own enemy, like we talked about the other day. Don't be your own enemy. Be your own friend. Live well. Live in the right way. Be kind in body, speech, and mind. Develop the spiritual path. Then, when you come to your deathbed, you're able to relax. You're able to enjoy death. Why? Yeah. Wow, death. Okay, no problem. I'm going to enjoy dying. Yeah? Most people are afraid of dying, but you won't be afraid of dying. You'll just enjoy the process. Calm, relaxed, and with a smile on your face. Say goodbye to your family members or whatever. That is the ideal way of doing this. So, uh, simile of the borrowed goods. Let's come to the last simile here. Suppose there was a dark forest grove, not far from a town or village, and there was a tree laden with fruit, yet none of the fruit had fallen to the ground. And along came a person in need of fruit, wandering in search of fruit. Having plunged deep into that forest grove, they would see that tree laden with fruit. They would think that tree is laden with fruit, yet none of the fruit has fallen to the ground. But I know how to climb a tree. Why don't I climb the tree, eat as much as I like, then fill my pouch? And that's what they did. And along would come a second person in need of fruit, wandering in search of fruit, carrying a sharp axe. Having plunged deep into that forest grove, they would see that same tree laden with fruit. 
They would think that tree is laden with fruit, yet none of the fruit has fallen to the ground. But I don't know how to climb a tree. Why don't I chop this tree down at the root, eat as much as I like, then fill my pouch? And they would do just that. What do you think, householder? If the first person who had climbed the tree doesn't quickly come down, when that tree fell down, wouldn't they break their hand or arm or other limb, resulting in, in death or uh, death-like suffering? Yes, sir. In the same way, a noble disciple reflects with a simile of the fruit tree, the Buddha said that sensual pleasures give little gratification and much suffering and distress, and they are all the more full of drawbacks. Having truly seen this with right understanding, they reject equanimity based on diversity and develop only equanimity based on unity, where all kinds of grasping to the world's material delights cease without anything left over. So um, here we have this person uh, wandering around the jungle, uh, and you can imagine it is a bit like our lives. We're wandering around the jungle of sen the sensory world, uh, yeah, in the same way that they are immersed in that jungle. The jungle is on all sides. They can't see very far. Uh, in the same way, we are immersed in sensory experience. Yeah? Right now, sensory experience is all around us. Uh, this is the jungle that we are immersed in. Uh, and as we wander around in the sensual experience, experiencing sight, sounds, and taste, and all of these kind of things, we are always looking out, trying to find the best kinds of sensory experience, trying to find the best partner, trying to find the best food, yeah, going to nice restaurants, finding a nice house, having a kind of a whatever it is in that realm, entertainments and foods and all these kind of things, going on holidays overseas or whatever, that whole realm of sensory experience, wandering around, and you find something really nice, a beautiful mango tree, yeah, and you climb that mango tree, beautiful sweet mangoes in that tree, yeah, and when you go up into that tree, you take the mangoes, you cut them open, and you start eating, yeah, devouring those mangoes because they are so beautiful. We all know what a really nice sweet mango is like. I'm saying mango because everyone likes mangoes. I don't say durian because many people don't like durian. <laughs> so I say something that people can relate, everyone can relate to. <laughs> So you start eating those mangoes, and then you lose your mindfulness, yeah, because you're enjoying those mangoes so much. You're just enjoying the sense pleasures. And when we are intoxicated by anything in life, whether it's alcohol or drugs, or sense pleasures, to come to the point here, sense pleasures can also be intoxicating, yeah. I mean, not as bad as alcohol, obviously, but still, it will have a bad effect on you. So while you are intoxicated in the top of that tree, you forget to be careful. You forget to look out yeah, for what actually is going on around you. And then this other person comes along with the axe, ready to chop down the whole tree. And if you don't get that mindfulness back in time, you're going to die. You're going to suffer as a consequence. And this is exactly what happens in our life. When we are intoxicated too much by the things we own, by the relationships we have, by the status we have, the power we have in society, when we are intoxicated by these things, we become stupid and we start doing bad things. And this is what often you find. You find people in very powerful positions, maybe very wealthy people, people who have everything, and still they act in very bad ways, in very stupid ways. They become corrupt, they amass lots of wealth, and they create an enormous amount of bad karma for themselves in the process. It's kind of crazy. And of course, we all become a little bit stupid like that. Because when we have a vested interest in the sensual pleasures of the world, that vested interest blinds us. It distorts our mind. And then we think what actually is immoral, we think it is moral. We think what is not okay actually is okay. We think what is blameworthy, we think it is blameless. That is the nature of having distorted perceptions. And everyone who is indulging in sensual pleasure to some extent, will have a degree of that distortion. So this is the importance of mindfulness, yeah? To always remind you, to always help you out of not kind of falling in that trap of being intoxicated by the sensual pleasures of the world. To have that clarity of mind, 
to not make decisions when you are in the throes of desire. When desire is very strong, you should never make any decisions about anything. Yeah, that 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 extramarital affair. It sounds very tempting when you are full of desires, uh, but when you have no desires, you know it's crazy. Uh, it's only when you're full of desires you do kind of stupid things like that. Uh, desires distort your outlook. It makes things look okay that actually are not okay. And so it is with corruption, with cheating, with everything. It seems better than it actually is because of the distortion of the mind. So this is the idea of having a sense of clarity in your life. Not allowing yourself to be intoxicated by these things. And when you understand all of these drawbacks, when you understand that eventually sensual pleasures will intoxicate you unless you emerge from these things, when you understand that actually you don't really own these things anyway, they're not all that interesting, when you understand that they are like a dream, yeah? when you understand that they are like a charcoal pit, when you understand the simile of the dog and the fighting that goes on in the name of sensual pleasures, when you start to get your mind around this, you start to see, actually, there is a big, big downside in these sensory pleasures. And there is something else in the world that is far, far more satisfying. So then you move away. You move away from the equanimity based on diversity, and you move towards the equanimity based on unity. The samadhi, the real satisfaction in life. And this is how you gradually move away from the sensory realm. It's hard, yeah, it's difficult, because it's almost everything we know is the sensory realm. We are completely stuck in a sense, not completely stuck. And there's only one escape from that sensory realm. And it's not to move somewhere else in the world. It's not to travel to another country. That is still exactly the same realm. There's only one escape from that realm, and that is within. Through meditation practice, through spiritual path, that is where you find that escape, Okay, everyone, so that is it for now. So uh, have a nice afternoon, and we'll see you back again at 7 o'clock here.